So we're in the middle of chapter 19, and um, I want to start off with a beautiful story triggered not directly by what we learned last week, but by a question that came up in class. Nancy's not here today, but this is in response to Nancy's question where she was asking about freedom of choice. And um, freedom of choice is complicated. It's not that simple because we know Hashem knows everything, and at the same time we have freedom of choice, and where do we have freedom of choice? But one of the things what we did, that we discussed last week was freedom of choice is really in our attitude and the choices that we make in the, in the situation where we are. So um, my high school class has a WhatsApp group, and they started in honor of my brother. Once a week, somebody leaves a voice note, a small Dvar Torah, three to five minutes. So Monday, a friend of mine shared something so powerful. She said, we always grew up with this mantra, tracht gut, wird sein gut. Think good, and it will be good. But she said, you know, it was just kind of like a phrase or a slogan in my head. It didn't mean that much to me until she heard that the Rebbe said that when you actually have bitachon, bitachon is more than just faith. It's actually trusting in God that God will make the situation turn out to be good. It's not just like, oh, whatever God does is good and, and I have faith in God. It's more th- than that. It's trust that Hashem is going to make the situation turn out in a way that I feel is great. So she said that made it that, it, that having bitachon, having this kind of idea in your head that trusting that God will make the situation good creates a physical vessel for the situation to turn out good. And so she said that her father-in-law, her husband's father, was very, very ill. This was like three to five years ago. The doctors already gave hope, up hope on him. They gave him a 10% chance to live. And the family was already planning a funeral. And her husband refused to talk along those lines. And he said, we're going to have bitachon. We're going to have trust in God that the situation is going to be 100% okay. The father-in-law was in an ICU in Palm Springs. The son moved to Palm Springs for the next two and a half weeks by his father's bedside every day. And guess what? Not only did the father recover, he is, thank God, in such good health. And he was already in his 60s then. He was in such great health that today he goes biking every single day together with his son. So that's just the power of choosing to have a positive attitude and place our faith in God that everything is going to be good. Now, we're in the middle of chapter 19. We are, we are discussing the natural love that a Jewish person has for Hashem. And it's not just that we have natural love for Hashem. The love is just the fact that we have a divine soul. And the essence of the divine soul is to have a relationship with Hashem and to want to be utterly subsumed within Hashem. It's something very strange about the divine soul. While every other creature or creation or existence strives to maintain its own existence, the divine soul does not strive to maintain its own existence. It would rather be nullified out of existence and be subsumed within God, which is very uh, strange and different than everything else in this universe. And we got up to... we. we spoke about how this comes from the power of Chachma, which is the power of, of total self-nullification to God. And it's this power of humility that, bless you, that gives us the chance to, that's, that that make, creates the space for God to rest within the divine soul. Now, talking about humility being the, the best vessel for accepting and God, because God cannot be understood. If we want to understand God with our mind, yes, there are certain things about Hashem that we can understand, and whatever we could understand, we 
we have, it's incumbent upon us to use our mind to understand Hashem. The more that we understand about Hashem, the more of a relationship that we have with Hashem. But then there's, Hashem is ultimately not understandable and not knowable. And that's that space in our soul where we have self-nullification to Hashem, that utter humility is the place where we get to make a vessel for him. In fact, there were two schools in the Talmud that were regularly in argument with each other. I know we mentioned them before. They were the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And they argued regularly. And, and one time, um, they, there was a discussion back and forth, and a voice from heaven came and said, Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim. Both these and those are the words of the living God. But the halacha, the law, is like base Hillel, like the house of Hillel. So another thing that the Talmud tells us about these two schools, they are both very, very smart, but it says about base Shammai, the school of Shammai, not the one that the halacha was like them, the other school, the school of Shammai, that they were they were much sharper. They were much sharper than the school of Hillel. And the Talmud asks, since both these and those are the words of the living God, why was the halacha like this, this house, the school of Hillel? And they said because they were humble and uh, self-deprecating, they didn't think, hold themselves highly, and any time they deferred with the house of Hillel, the school of, of Shammai, they always quoted the opinion of Shammai first, and then they quoted their own opinion. I don't care. You know what I'm saying? We're talking about what's the law. In order to figure out what's the law, you should be smarter. I don't care if you're humbler. I don't care if you're nicer. What does that have to do with anything? But that's exactly it. Because when we're coming to the divine law, Shira, hi! Come join us, When we're talking about the divine law of coming to the truth as Hashem sees it, what we need is humility. Of course, you need to be smart. Beis Hillel was very, very smart. But at the end of the day, they were able to get their own self out of the way. And because they were able to get their own self out of the way, they were able to tap into the absolute divine truth. Okay, so we are in the middle of page... One, two, three, four... I think we're at the bottom of page five. No, we actually started page six. Um, What we started to say was that although every single Jewish person has this divine soul and anything that is connected to the power of Chachma is connected to life. It's Chachma that gives life and anything that is opposing Chachma and is opposed to holiness is essentially dead. True, it lives by sucking life force out out of the holiness, but it itself has no life of its own. It's internally dead. Now, not only are the klipas called dead, not only are those that oppose the Jewish people called dead, but also the sinners are called dead. Why are we calling the sinners dead? Don't they also have chachma in them? Don't they also have a divine soul within them? And that's what we started to say last time, that yes, they do have a divine soul within them, but the, thi- the thing with them is that they're not living with their divine soul on a regular basis. So while the divine soul is within them, it's in a state of exile. And we said, what's exile? Exile is you're totally healthy. You have use of all your limbs, but you're not using your powers to serve your own interests. 
You're using your powers to serve your enemy. And that's exactly the secret of the exile of the Shekhinah. It says that when the Jewish people went into exile, the Shekhinah went into exile with them. And of course it just means to the merit of the Jewish people. They're in exile, God is with them. But it also means that within our soul, the Shekhinah, the divine presence, the, the Hashem is what gives us life. He is our energizing force. But when we act in a way that's against Hashem, we are taking Hashem's powers and using them against Him. And that is the Gaulus of the Shekhinah, the exile of the Shekhinah. So while these wicked people have Chachma in them and they are totally connected to the divine, they are called dead because they don't live with that consciousness every single day. So how is this, how is this love within them? Okay, I'm going to start with the English in the middle of the page, and then we'll move to the Hebrew. For this reason, this love found in the divine soul, whose wish and desire is to unite with Hashem, the fountainhead of all life, is called hidden love. An apparent contradiction in terms, love denotes a manifest emotion and is not at all hidden. It is called hidden only when it is obstructed by an alien entity, not because of any inherent quality or of concealment, as the altar goes on to say. So we started to say that every Jewish person has a love of God, and it's called Ahava Mesuteris. No matter who you are, no matter how great, no matter how wicked, every single Jewish person has a natural love for God, and it's called Ahava Mesuteris, a hidden love. It's called hidden. Hi, Cheryl! It's called hidden because... So, so great to see you. I miss you. It's called hidden because, not because it's inherently hidden, but because there's something that obstructs it. What is obstructing it? For it is hidden and veiled. In the case of the transgressors of Israel in the sackcloth of Klippa. So the way the animal soul uh, acts, uh, the way the divine soul has any power to act on the body is not by itself. The divine soul has no relationship with the body directly. It's not able to act upon the body. How does it act upon the body? Through the medium of the animal soul. So there's the divine soul, and that comes from, it's actually literally a part of God himself. And it vests itself in the animal soul, which, which is the most spiritual, physical self that we have. That's the medium. Although it's, it's not holy, the animal soul, it's spiritual. So this is, the, and the animal soul has a direct relationship with the body. It's vested in the blood of the body. The blood is the most spiritual, physical part of our body because of the heat. The heat is something that's of a spiritual quality. So there's the divine soul that vests itself in the animal soul, and the animal soul that vests itself in the blood. So every time the, the divine soul acts upon the body, it's through the medium of the animal soul. Now, in the wicked people, the animal soul is in control. So while the divine soul is vested within it, it's not free to give itself expression. Remember we talked about the term garment. What is a garment? A garment is something that conceals, but it's also something that reveals. A word is a garment. We're gonna discuss words a lot next chapter. A word is a garment. So when you say something, you reveal something of what you're thinking, you're also hiding things. You're only expressing something of what you're thinking. Clothing hides the body, but it also expresses the body. You can, when you look at a person's clothing, you can see something of their shape. You can see something of their mood, uh, something of their personality. So clothing both hides and reveals. But when we're talking about a sackcloth, a sackcloth only hides. It doesn't reveal. 
It's not standard clothing. It's something that's just concealing the soul. It's uncomfortable. It doesn't let the soul express itself. And that's how it is with the wicked people, that their divine soul is trapped in a state of exile in a sackcloth of the klipa. Now, it's, I have to point out, it's not just wicked people, but any, the, for the majority of us, our divine soul is somewhat trapped in the, the sackcloth of klipa. And that is because any time that we don't act with divine intention, we are automatically not acting totally in line with our divine soul. The perfectly holy life is that everything that we do is with divine intention. The second that we do something, even if it's neutral, something that we need to do, like eating to keep body and soul together, if there's no divine intention there, there's already some sort of schism going on. In fact, it was in last week's Parsha where we read the section of Shema, and one of the things that it says over there is, Visartem la'avadatem elokim acherim, and you will turn away and you will serve strange gods. This is part of you know, warning the Jews not to um, stray. And so in explaining this verse from the Torah, the Baal Shem Tov says, Visartem va'avadatem elokim acherim, you will turn away and you will serve foreign gods. The Baal Shem Tov says something like this. He says, the moment that you have turned away, it's already like serving foreign God. It's not just about serving idols, it's about turning your back on Hashem. The second a person lose cognizant, loses cognizance of Hashem and that he is their life and that's everything that they do is with that intention, it's already a subtle form of idol worship. And we're gonna discuss this at length next chapter. So um, what happens to the power of Chachma in the sinner soul? From the klipa, there enters into them a spirit of folly which leads them to sin. As our sages remark, a person does not sin unless a spirit of folly enters into him. So here this person is called dead because he's not in touch with his divine soul. His divine soul is trapped within the sackcloth of klipa, and from the klipa he gets these spir- the spirit of folly to sin. Our sages tell us that a person doesn't sin unless a spirit of folly enters into him. This comes from the Isha Sota, the wayward wife, the straying wife. And it says, a woman, ki sista, when she will turn aside. The word that's used is sista, it's the same words as shtus, which means silliness, foolishness, folly. And so the Talmud, in the Talmud, the rabbis comment on that and say, why does the Torah use this word sista? to teach us that any time a person sins, the only reason why he sins is because he was overtaken by a spirit of folly. Now, there's two ways that the spirit of folly could happen. And this is the very simple way. The very simple way is the person knows that this is wrong. They know that they're not going to be happy and they're going to regret doing it. Even while they're doing it, they're already regretting it. They know it's not inherent with their ultimate goal or their will or desire, and they're doing it anyway. Is there anything crazier than that? It's just absolutely crazy. They, they know they don't want to do it. And as they're doing it, they're regretting it, and they're doing it anyway. They're, there's nothing, they know that a minute later they're going to regret it. What is crazier than that? It's like the story of the wagon driver. You know, he's taking the merchant on a trip, and there's a pit coming up. And so the merchant says, hey, watch out, there's a pit. And he turns around and he goes, want to be quiet. I'm in the business for 25 years. I drive this way every way. Stop every single day. Stop telling me how to drive. Okay. Watch out, there's a pit. Did you hear what I said? I'm the driver, you're the merchant, you be quiet, everybody keeps to their own business. Help, we're going into the pit. What do you know, they fall in the pit. 
And then the wagon driver turns to the merchant and he says, I don't get it. I'm in the business for 25 years. I go down this route every single day. And every single day I fall into the pit. That's exactly it. That's the silliness, the spirit of folly. Hi. That's the spirit of folly that, hi, that enters a person when they're sinning. They know that they're not going to be happy and they're doing it anyway. But then there's another spirit of folly that enters the person. And that is that the person convinces himself that what he's doing is not really a sin. You know, this is only symbolic. It's just merely of historical significance. It has nothing to do with my relationship with Hashem. You know, it's like, this piece of cake is so good for me. <laughs> it's not just saying, oh, after I eat the cake, I feel bad. It's saying, there's nothing wrong with it. It actually has vitamins. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this cake, God forbid. It's beautiful, just as an illustration. <laughs> This, it's really wonderful. It's going to give me all the vitamins and nutrients I need today. And who said eating cake is so bad? So it's the two ways that, that there's foolishness. The foolishness that's doing something that you don't want to be doing and the foolishness of thinking that there's actually nothing wrong with it. Ella, shegalas hazeh, lebchinas chachma. Oh, one second. So let's ask a question here. So we're saying that wicked people are, li- are not living with the influence of chachma in their life. The Chachma in their life is in a state of exile. It's trapped under the dominion of the animal soul. But we discussed earlier that when they're put to a test of faith, all of a sudden, the spark speaks up. Why is the spark speaking up all of a sudden? I thought it's under the dominion of the animal soul. What gives it the power to speak up at this kind of time? So what we're going to go on to explain now is that there's two aspects to the Chachma of the divine soul. There is the root and core of Chachma, and that is essentially untouchable. And then there is its energizing influence, the way that the Chachma relates to all levels of the soul. Remember that it's the Chachma that gives energy and vivifies all aspects of the soul. But that's only this, the aspect of Chachma that relates to the soul. There is a part of Chachma that is untouchable and beyond. And let's see what happens with this when it is put to a test of faith. So we're at the bottom of the page. But this exile of the faculty of Chachma affects only that aspect of it which is diffused throughout the Nefesh and animates it with divine vitality. Being in exile, it is unable to pervade the entire soul and through the entire body with the feeling of self-nullification before God, characteristic of Chachma. Thus, in the state of exile, it is unable to prevent one from sinning. Yet, the root and core of Chachma and the divine soul is in the brain and does not clothe itself in the sackcloth of Klippa, in the left part of the, in the heart, in a true state of exile, so that it be powerless to prevent one from sinning. It is merely dormant in the case of the wicked, not exercising its influence within him, meaning not creating within the Jew the spirit of self-nullification before God that it ought to create, as long as their knowledge and understanding are preoccupied with mundane pleasures. The sole faculty of da'as, knowledge, and understanding, bina, 
are lower than Chachma, yet the level of Chachma is prevented from acting upon them and upon the other lower still faculties as long as they are immersed in mundane pleasures. Thus, the Chachma of their divine soul is dormant, not dead. It has lost none of its potency, only its ability to exercise it. Just as one sleeps, he retains full possession of his faculties, though he cannot use them. So when we were talking about the Chachma being in exile, about having to use its own powers to serve a foreign entity, we were only talking about the manifestation of Chachma. But when it comes to the core root of Chachma, how is it in sinners and people who have lost their control? It's in a state of sleep. Sleep is different than exile. Both in sleep and in exile, a person is not using their powers to serve their own self. But in exile, they're using their powers to serve a foreign entity. In sleep, it's just not acting. It's just sleeping. The second it gets woken up, it has full control to use, a person has full control to use their powers for their own self. In fact, that's what happens. A person could be sleeping, suddenly they find themselves in mortal danger, and all of a sudden they're wide awake and acting with full vigor. And that's how it is with the core and root of Chachma in the soul. It's never able to be exiled. It's only in a state of sleep. There's a part of us that is never able to be exiled. There's something in us that is ultimately, inherently free. It's something that I like to think about every day when I say Shema, actually, you know? It's like we're connecting to, we say Shema Yisrael, here, Jewish people, Havaya Elokeinu, this transcendent Hashem who transcends all of creation is Elokeinu. He is our God as Hashem invests himself in nature. We are able to connect to Hashem as he transcends all. We have this place within us, this deep self that is completely inherently free. It will never ever go into exile. The worst that will happen is that it will go to sleep. Now, Rabbi Steinsaltz points out that in the revolutions of the 19th century, all the many of them, you know, from communism to in whatever revolution, the scientific revolutions, the Jewish percentage of those revelations, or of those revolutions, were, much, were very, very disproportionate to how many Jews there are in the world. The Jews were so much a part of all these revolutions, their percentage of the groups within these revolutions and within the leadership of the revolution was so great, and yet Jewish people are only a, what, a small percentage of the population, and that's because of this. They were taking this power of Chachma that they have, this transcendence, they're using this divine space and sometimes using it in a twisted and distorted manner in order to create some type of revolution. But that only happens with the level of Chachma that relates to the soul and energizes it, it's, it's energizing influence. The root and the, pow- and the soul core of Chachma is only sleeping. And this is what happens when a, a Jew is suddenly faced with a test of, uh, faced with a test of faith. At that point, it touches its very core and it wakes up. Excuse me. However, when they, the wicked, are confronted with a test of faith, which transcends knowledge, touching the very soul and faculty of Chachma within it, the source of faith, then it arises from sleep, meaning Chachma reveals itself, and it exerts its influence with the divine force that is clothed within it. Its influence being to create a spirit of self-sacrifice for Hashem, as the Alter Rebbe states further. So everybody has their own threshold. It's the story, like you said, about that guy that had nothing to do with religion, and then when he was uh, about to convert himself, 
He was like right away woke up and he said no. That's right. His whole life so, is going around being a thief and then they say convert and he's giving up his life for Hashem. What Hashem? You never listened to him all your life. But everybody has their own threshold. Again, from what Rabbi Steinsaltz writes, he writes that in the 17th century, there was a Jew who was very involved in immoral affairs and then with financial stuff, he became involved with the Christian aristocracy until he converted and became Christian himself. And his children remained religious. And when they got called up to the Torah and Shul, they weren't allowed to be called up by their father's name because he was considered a heretic. And what happened was there was a blood libel and they wanted somehow him to be involved. And when it Didn't came to- say that a Jew stayed Yeah, I want to talk about that. Oh, okay. And, and um, when it came to him all of a sudden putting the whole community at stake, he wouldn't do it. At that point, he gave up his fame, his wealth, all his money, his life. He sacrificed his life so the Jewish people should not have to go through this you know, blood libel thing. What are you talking about? You're a guy who turned your back on religion. You, he converted. And then, then Dini's asking, what do you mean? We said that person doesn't convert. So this is how it is. The Talmud tells us like this, you know, the, the, the Yates are evil inclination is never going to come to a, you know, a good Jew one day and say, hey, convert. Please. The Jew's not going to listen. So what does it do? The, the Talmud spells it out. Bless you. It says like this. Kach hi umanusai shal This is the craft of the evil inclination. Hayayim aimerlai ase kach. Today it tells him, do this. Tomorrow it tells him to do that. Until it tells him, go worship idols, and he will worship idols. It's like the the famous old saying, I don't know where it comes from, about you can't kill a frog by throwing it into boiling water. You know, we're not going to do that because that's cruelty to animals and that's against what we believe. But you're not, you cannot kill a frog by throwing it into a pot of boiling water because the frog is going to jump out immediately, unharmed. The way to kill the frog is you put it into cold water and you turn up the fire and the water gets heated slowly and then before you know it the frog is cooked and that's how it is with people who uh, you know like this guy it didn't start off with one day his Christian neighbors came and said hey become Christian and he's like sure no that's not how it happened you know first there were women involved and then there was money involved and then he became friends with them until it was just you know socially for his benefit to all of a sudden become Christian but his, he had a very, very high threshold. But when it came to putting the entire community at stake, that's when he was woken up. You know, for somebody else, it could be woken up with something as telling him to move mukta on Shabbos. You know, that's when his inner self is going to rattle. Everybody has their own threshold. But every single Jewish person, no matter how great or how bad, you know, he has chachma within him. He has this divine spark. And... For some people, it takes a greater rattling than for other people, but we all have it within us. And when that point is touched, all of a sudden, it's like a soul quake, and the person wakes up. (coughs) As it is written, then the Lord awakened as one out of sleep. This refers also to the level of Chachma and the light of the Ainsof that clothed therein, which was previously in a state of sleep, inactive, but arises and exerts its influence when faced with a test of faith. The revelation of Chachma leads even the sinner to withstand the test of faith in God without any reasoning or knowledge that he can have, 
can comprehend, which would motivate him to sacrifice his life. And to prevail over the Klippites and over his desires towards worldly matters, both permitted and forbidden, which he was accustomed to indulge, and even to despise them. In this state of readiness for martyrdom, the sinner not only overcomes his desires for worldly pleasures, but he loses them entirely, and the objects of his past desires are now detestable to him. So this is like a, a complicated thing. All his life he wasn't able to resist, and now he's able to resist. But that's because even though he didn't have power all his life, it's not him who has power, it's Hashem. All of a sudden, when he comes to this test of faith, when he gets this awakening where his soul is just shaken to the core, it's all of a, it was sleeping and all of a sudden it woke up, it's Vayikatz Kiyashen Hashem. It's Hashem who has woken up from slumber. It's the Hashem in his soul. And with the power of Hashem in his soul, he now has the power not only to give up his life for Hashem, but it extends to all places of his soul. It's not just now he is ready to give up his life for Hashem. Now he's willing not to steal anymore, like the, the thief. Uh, uh, the whole life he was running around stealing and he didn't think about a second about Hashem. All of a sudden when he was put to the test of faith, he's giving up his life for Hashem. But at that moment that he's giving up his life for Hashem, not only is he giving up his life for Hashem not to convert, he's also detesting and finding disgusting all the things that he found pleasurable before. So at that moment, he's also thinking that thievery is bad. It, it pervades him so totally. And in fact, if a Jew has come to a state where he's ready to give up his life, he's about to be killed and then somehow it doesn't happen and he remains alive and his life is saved, he undergoes an essential transformation. There was a rattling within his soul. He changes. He's not going to be a complete tzaddik all of a sudden. He's still going to have freedom of choice. But there's a new realization that he has because there was this awakening within his soul. He's essentially changed. He's undergone a transformation. You know, somebody has gone through a trauma. This is like a positive trauma and a mo uh, spiritual trauma. His deepest self was woken up, and now he's different. And what does he do at that time when he's overcoming the klipah? And to choose God as his portion and his lot, meaning he dedicates to Hashem both his internal faculties of intellect and emotion, referred to as one's portion, and his higher transcendent faculties, his will and pleasure, which are called one's law. That he is prepared to offer his soul to God in martyrdom for the sanctification of his name. Although the Klippites prevailed over him, over this sinner who was now prepared to accept martyrdom all his life, and he was impotent against them, as the rabbis have said that the wicked are under the control of their heart, meaning the animal soul of the, of the klipa, situated in the left part of their heart. So his whole life he had no control. You know, everybody starts out with self-control. It's like somebody who became addicted. He started out with self-control. But then it comes to a certain point where he just doesn't have self-control anymore. He has given up his power of freedom of choice to a certain extent. So, somebody is so when somebody is so wicked and he has no more freedom of choice, he was just sinning repeatedly. He didn't even think about it anymore. He didn't even have a conscious. And then all of a sudden at this soul-quaking moment, he chooses to be on Hashem's side. It's like all of a sudden it's like, you know, who do you choose? Uh, uh, your life or Hashem? And he says, Hashem. At that time, he's able to overcome all the klipas. And the Alter Rebbe will explain to us why. Mikol makim, 
כשבא לידי ניסיון בדבר אמונה בהשם אחד, שיסודסה בהרי קיידש, היא בחינת חכמה שבנפש אליקס, שבא מלובש אור אין סייף ברכו. Nevertheless, when he faces a test challenging his faith in the one God, a faith whose foundation is that, that level of the divine soul called the heights of holiness, namely the faculty of chachma, which is called kodesh, the source of holiness, as previously explained, in which is clothed the light of the Ein Sof, blessed be he, then all the Kalipites become nullified and they vanish as though they had never been in the presence of the Lord. So up until now he had to struggle with Klippa. At this time, when all of a sudden Hashem makes his appearance in the Chachma of his soul, the Klippa vanishes. It's not even a struggle anymore like we discussed previously in chapter 12 that when, when the light is on, it's not like the light had to struggle with the darkness and now the light prevailed. It's automatic. As soon as the light turns on, the darkness recedes. So this is what happens to him. It's no longer a struggle with his dark side. As soon as this power is lit up in his soul, it automatically, the klipa automatically dissipates. It just appears, disappears like darkness does. So it is written, he's bringing, the altar was bringing different verses to um, show how when Hashem makes his appearance, the other side just disappears. And these are the verses. All the nations, including all the, all, also the Klipot, are as a nothing before him. And for all your enemies, O Lord, referring also to the Klipot, which are the enemies of God, all your enemies will perish, they will be scattered. And again, as wax melts before fire, so shall the wicked perish. And hills referring to the klipa, which are compared to hills by reason of their hachur. Did I pronounce that right? <laughs> it's a French word, isn't it? How do you pronounce that? Auteur. Okay. Yeah, arrogance. Oh, oh, you're saying height. But in English, we also use it as for arrogance. Melted like wax. All these verses illustrate how the klipot vanish when the light of God is found in the chachma of the divine soul reveals itself. Therefore, despite the fact that the klipot always had the upper hand over a sinner, he is able to overcome them when his faith is challenged. We thus see that every Jew has an inherent ability to overcome temptation by virtue of his soul's hidden love of God originating in his faculty of chachma. He merely needed to arouse it. And actually the altar brings four different verses. And those correspond to, as pointed out by the Rebbe's father, those respond to the four levels of klipot. There are the three utterly unclean klipot, and then there is the, the klipot are the forces of unholiness. So there are the three utterly unclean, unrectifiable levels of unholiness, and then there is the fourth klipa, the fourth level of uh, unholiness called klipat noga, which is rectifiable, not holiness. And if you notice, the three first verses are all saying about utter destruction, while the last verse that corresponds to the rectifiable klipa is just talking about melting. So it's not utter destruction, it's just melting. And that's how it is. With the three completely unclean klipot, things that are totally forbidden, the way that we elevate them is by resisting. But when it comes to things that are rectifiable, the things that are food, we can make it holy. So it's not about destroying it, it's about elevating it. So what happens is, 
All of this disappears when Hashem makes his appearance. Or the force of the divine light of the Ainsof that is clothed in the soul's faculty of Chachma is so intense. As to banish and repel the Sitra Achra and the Klippa so that they are unable to touch even its garments, namely the thought, speech, and action that expresses one's faith in the unity of God. That is, not only can the Klippot not weaken one's faith, they cannot even prevent his faith from expressing itself in th- thought, speech, and action. And this is something that we discussed earlier in Tanya, that there's the, the, your core identity, and then there's the way you express yourself. Your intellect, your emotions, the way you think, the way you feel, that's your core identity. The way you express yourself are your thoughts, your speech and your action. And the example given many times is um, to understand something, you use your core identity. So if I tell you, understand that two plus two is five, you're not going to be able to do that. It, It doesn't make sense. Your core identity doesn't relate to that. But you could use your external garments to profess that idea. So you can even hold the thought in your the th- our thought is the m- closest to our core identity, but it nevertheless is not our core identity. So you can even hold the thought in your head, two plus two is five. You can say it with your mouth. You can say two plus two is five. These are external garments. So when Chachba shines in the soul, not only does the core identity of the person identify, and they will not go ahead and switch their belief to f- turn their back on God, but they won't even allow their external garments to profess other than faith in God. So they will, even if they don't believe it, they're not going to say something against Hashem. They're not going to act against Hashem, even if they don't believe it. Now, um, okay, we'll talk about this a little later. I know the questions that are going to come up soon. But um, this, the story goes about um, Hannah and her seven sons. This is during the time of Hanukkah, the, the story of the Maccabees. So there was a woman, Hannah, this is told, uh, recounted in the Talmud, she had seven sons, and the wicked king Antiochus tried to get her sons to bow down to an idol. And each of them s- said a verse from the Torah, like it says, I am, God, I am God your God, how would I? And he was executed, little boys, one after the nether, another. Each one said a verse from the Torah, and he was executed. And it came to the seventh son, and the king said, speak to him, tell him that he will save his life. So she took him to the side, and she told, reminded him that... This is how she, she carried her, him in her womb, and this is how she raised him. And we only li- we live for God, and we give up our life if we're fa- you know. She didn't say what the king told her to say. She t- reminded him of his Jewish essence. And the king, you know, at this point, we felt so defeated. It's one little boy, and she said, told the little boy, listen, I'm going to put my signet ring on the floor. And all you have to do is bend down and, and pick up the signet ring. It will look like you're bowing down to the idol, but this way you can save your life. And the little boy refused to do it. And he was executed. And Hannah, at that moment, said to her little boy, she said, she said to her dead sons, she said, you're crying and you're making me cry. She said, my, she said, my children, go back and tell our father Abraham that you were willing to sacrifice one son for God, but I have given seven. And the point of this story is that this little boy refused even to bow down for pretend. 
he wouldn't even go and pick up a signet ring without believing at all in the idol. It just, when this power of Chachma shines, it touches not just the core and the essence and the identity of the person, it reaches out to the person's most external aspects of themselves. A person could say anything that they don't believe. A person could bend down and not believe it. And he refused because at this point when Chachma was shining, it touched all aspects of his soul, out to the exter- most external places. So too, he will sacrifice his life so as not to speak falsely, God forbid, concerning the unity of God, even where his words do not reflect his true feelings, <coughs> for his heart is in perfect belief in its perfect in its belief in God. This readiness for self-sacrifice is not an expression of one's love of God, which reveals itself when confronted with a test of faith, for his love is not directly affected by such empty words or actions. Rather, it expresses the fear contained in the hidden love, the fear of being torn away from God. So this is the other question that we had. I'm sorry. In chapter 18, remember we had four questions, and one of those questions was, sorry for making everybody emotional. <laughs> one of those questions was, how is fear also included in the love? Because if somebody loves Hashem, so, bless you, if somebody loves Hashem, they might utter empty words just to save their life. The reason why they're not uttering empty words just to save their life is because the fear. And this fear is fear included in this natural love. It's like you're not going to say that wanting to live and being afraid to die are two separate emotions. You know, generally speaking, love and fear are two separate emotions. But wanting to live and not wanting to die is one and the same emotion. And that's how it is here. With this natural love of God, it includes within it a fear. It, it, the person loves God so much, they also don't want to be separated from Him from even a moment. And this fear of separation is fear that's included in love. This is called the fear contained in love, meaning the natural love found in the divine soul of all Jews, whose intrinsic desire and will is to be attached to its origin and source, the light of the blessed Ein Sof. For by virtue of this love and its desire, it instinctively recoils in fear and dread from touching, God forbid, even the fringe of impurity of idolatry, which denies the faith in God's unity. Now note that the Alter Rebbe says over here that because of this love, it recoils in fear from touching even the impurity of idolatry. He doesn't say the sin of idolatry. Because if a person bows down to an idol, not because they believe in it, but in order to save their life, although they're not allowed to, this does not carry the full weight of the sin of idolatry. A person is supposed to die for three things. A person in general is not supposed to die. They're supposed to live. It says, v'chai bahem. You should live with the mitzvahs. Don't die with them. So, you know, you know, God forbid a person needs to be rushed to the hospital on Shabbos. We are supposed to desecrate the Shabbos in order to save their life. But there's three things that a person is meant to give up their life and not desecrate. And one of them is idolatry, idol worship. So they are worshiping idols, committing adultery, or murder. These three things a person is not allowed to do, and they need to die instead of committing any of these things. These three. But let's say a person bows down to the idol, not because they believe, 
but because they want to save their life. So they don't have the belief. They're just doing it to save their life. They're not allowed to. But they don't get punished for it. It's not, they're not punishable by sin because they were by, it's not called, it doesn't carry the full weight of the sin because they did it out of coercion. So while they're not supposed to, we don't, we're not going to call it the sin of idol worship. What we're calling it is the impurity of idol worship. And a person will not even touch the outer, the fringe of the impurity of idol worship. They'll be giving up their life so as not to separate themselves from God. Even where such contact involves only its outer garments, namely idolatrous speech and action without any faith whatever in the heart in the validity of the idol worship. Even this the soul dreads, and this dread represents the fear contained in the hidden love. When a Jew considers that he would willingly give up his life rather than be parted from God, he will surely realize that A, he should certainly refrain from sin for the very same reason, since every sin tears one away from God. And B, he ought to fulfill all the commandments, for through them one achieves the objective of his hidden love, unity with God. In this way, one may utilize his hidden love and the fear of God contained in it as a motivation for observing all the commandments, as will be explained at length in the upcoming chapters. So they're giving a preview over here of the upcoming chapters. But 18 and 19 are like almost like one chapter together. And what we discuss in these two chapters is that every single Jewish person, no matter how much or how little they know, they have this love for God. It's not something that they could create. It's not something they even have a choice about. You don't have a choice. You just love God. For some people, they go their whole life without feeling it. It's just not manifest. They're so out of touch. Their animal soul prevails that their divine soul and this spark within them, the spark of Chachma, is is in exile and in sleep. So it's there. They have this love, but it's just dormant and it's in exile. But it, there comes to a point where a Jewish person would be put to a test of faith and all of a sudden this faith in God is touched at its core and it explodes. And then at that point, this Jewish person is willing to give up their life for God and they're no longer under the power of klipa. They have totally transcended it. The klipa disappears. Now, the reason why we're discussing all of this is because um, we were discussing how it's very, very much within reach for every single Jewish person to keep the Torah and mitzvahs with all of their heart and with all of their soul. And so knowing this secret that we would be willing to die for God is now going to give us a new consciousness and awareness of how to take this atomic bomb, because yes, an atomic bomb explodes in a second, but the key is not to have it explode in a second. It's to take the energy of the atomic bomb, bomb and tap into it so that it provides useful energy in a day-to-day -day life. It's one thing to die for God, but we're going to see what it means to take this power to die for God and live for Hashem. It's like I heard a story of Golda Meir. There was all these like, um, you know, English kids that came to help fight. And then when the war was over, they were getting back on a plane and going home. And she said to them, I don't understand you. You were willing to die with us. Why won't you come live with us? And that's, that's the key here. And the next chapter, it's going to be abstract, so I'm giving you the heads up. We're going to try to tap into the idea to make our soul aware that it's really all about it and that every mitzvah is an expression of either living or dying, God forbid, um, for Hashem. And so that concludes this chapter. <coughs> uh, you had a question?
So, first of all, one of the laws that we can't kill, when, when there are soldiers and the, above, the sergeants tell them kill that enemy. That's different. That's the rule of Chayecha Kaidman. Your life comes first. The enemy. Yes, that's, that's self defense. And, and the, th- the only, only Jewish people don't understand that. Any other person, you know, they're like. It's an order from the higher up, but if you trust that the general is out for the defense of the country, okay. you know, you, if every soldier makes their own reckoning, the, the war is lost. Okay, you know, let's you, say yeah. that Khana, um, all those seven kids could have grown up and become something, even if they didn't believe in the idol, if they just. What if they, sh- they hold a um, gun to the kid's head and then told the mom, you have to bow down? What if the mom wants to save the kids and would do it, even though they don't believe in the idol? Yeah, I know. These are the these are one of the three things that Jews die for. So she's at that point, it's at that point, people who have come to that point and have given up their life. It wasn't a logical reckoning. There was nothing logical about it. That's what we talked about. This power of the soul. Because yeah, you could say, listen, there's there's this. Let's say they say this is an idol and bow. I mean, you know, it's nothing. It means nothing. So I, I, I know, I know, I know, you, I know your question. So, you know, I, I think this law came about because a lot of people did, and then they they were hiding for generations, and then they were lost anyways. So, so, so this law has you're, my, you're practically dead if you do. I mean, in their like in there were places that they had to convert, saying one sentence to stay alive, and they said, but they still practice right. Jewish, right? And so that's what that's the choice that they made, and that's what they did. So and and there's no judgment of them, but a, a Jewish person is supposed to die instead of bowing down to an idol. Mm-hmm. Now and we're not even saying one sentence. Like they used to force that if you say this sentence, then you become, for example, Muslim. Um, that would have. I, I know your that. question, and it's a deep question that we all have. You know, we know the persecution that Jews went through, and then the choices that they made about either to go into hiding and only take on to act as either a Christian or a Muslim. You know, they, they, they did the best that they could. Uh, Ida, you had a question? No. I have a question. Yes. So the, you know, the spirit of folly, is uh-huh. it, it seems like it's an external force. Is it actually just like one of the Yitzhara's tools? Or like, what, like it seems like, you know, you're overcome by this. So yeah. Is it just like you're overcome by your own internal Yitzhara yeah. or just like an you're over you're overcome by your own your own you have an element of klipa within you that's your divine your animal soul your animal soul comes from the khalifa and klipa itself is just it's just for pretend it's it itself is foolishness it actually is foolishness that's what it is it's just a big show and person is you know it's 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 a constant condition of life the foolishness and it comes it's a voice from inside is it so it's like the klipa? Yeah, the klipa talking. It's the Yetzir Hara giving voice to the klipa saying, you know, do it. It's, it's fun. It's exciting. It's nothing wrong with it after all. The Yetzir Hara is a separate thing from the klipa? You're saying it's giving voice to the klipa? So the, the Yetzir Hara is an aspect of your animal soul. Your animal soul is, is a whole persona of mm-hmm. intellect and emotions. And the Yetzir Hara is the drive. It's the, you know, yeah, exactly. So it's an, an aspect of the animal soul, but it's something that we have to live with, <laughs> unfortunately.